Hello, and welcome to the City Club of Cleveland. I'm Heather Stoll, Vice President of External Affairs for the Sisters of Charity Health System. It's April 27th, and you're with a virtual City Club Forum. Last year, as the COVID pandemic dramatically altered life as we knew it, experts forecasted a parallel pandemic of declining mental health. We now have the data to back up that prediction. A recent su survey from the Kaiser Family Foundation found that four in 10 U.S. adults now report symptoms of anxiety or de depressive disorder, up from one in 10 adults who reported these same symptoms at the same time in 2019. Suicides, attempted suicides, and drug overdoses also increased. Despite the clear increased need for mental health and behavioral health services, many aren't able to get the help they need. This is especially true for people of color and people with marginalized gender identities. Today, we'll talk with local experts about the current mental health and behavioral health crisis and share new approaches to help improve the mental health of Northeast Ohio residents. As in every City Club forum, you can participate with your questions. Text them to 330-541-5798. That's 330-541-5794. You can also tweet them at the City Club, at the City Club. We'll try to work them in. Now for today's speakers. Joining us today are Dr. Michael Bascaro, Chief of Behavioral Health at St. Vincent Charity Medical Center. Committed to serving all people with dignity and compassion, St. Vincent Cherry Medical Center offers a variety of inpatient and outpatient services to those in need of behavioral health treatment. This includes the hospital's psychiatric emergency department, which is one of two in Ohio and seven in the nation, and Rosary Hall, which is one of Ohio's first and best hospital-based addiction treatment centers, has been at the forefront of treating drug dependency for nearly 70 years. In his position since January 2020, Dr. Briscaro is leading St. Vincent Cherry Medical Center's transformational effort to create an integrated and expanded continuum of services that, that addresses the holistic needs of all patients. Jonathan Lee, President and CEO of Signature Health. Jonathan struggled with substance abuse as a teen, but thankfully found recovery at age 17. Motivated by his life experiences, in 1993, he opened North Coast Center, an agency that focused on treating adolescents and for substance abuse, which later became Signature Health. Today, Signature Health is a nonprofit, federally qualified healthcare center providing mental health, addiction recovery, and primary care services to patients across Northeast Ohio. Over the years, its budget has grown from 30000 to more than $68 million annually. And Joan England, Executive Director of the Mental Health and Addiction Advocacy Coalition. Known as MHAC, MHAC is comprised of more than 120 organizations around the state of Ohio, including behavioral health agencies serving both adults and children, health and human service agencies, the faith-based community, government and advocacy organizations, major medical institutions in the corporate arena. In her role since 2003, Joan leads MHAC's work to foster education and awareness of mental health and addiction issues 
while advocating for public policies and strategies that support effective, well-funded services, systems and supports for those in need, resulting in stronger Ohio communities. Moderating today's conversation is Ben Maladin, Vice President of Behavioral Health Strategy and Design at the Centers. He came to the Centers recently after spending five and a half years working as Director of Health at United Way of Greater Cleveland. He has a master's degree in social work and has worked extensively in mental health and addiction treatment in the Cleveland area. Ben, I turn the forum over to you. Thanks so much, Heather, for the great introduction. I'm really, really pleased to be here. And thank you for inviting me to moderate this panel with these amazing panelists. This is an enormous topic, so let's get right to it. And I wanted to lead off with a general question about the state of the behavioral health delivery system broadly, both during and after the COVID-19 pandemic. Just for clarification, by the way, for the audience, the term behavioral health is often used as an umbrella term to refer to mental health and addiction concerns. So now more than ever, it seems we need to have more integrated systems to help people recover, not just from COVID-19, but from the complex mental health addiction issues that have happened in concert with physical health issues over the last year, as well as the economic hardship faced by many in the last year. Um, how, how have systems been working, moving towards more holistic care before and during the pandemic? And where do we need to get to? And I will kick it off to Dr. Biscaro to start this discussion. Um, thank you, Ben. Um, everybody can hear me good. Um, I'm, thanks for the introduction, Heather. Um, pleasure to be here today to talk about some pretty critical issues um, with you all. Um, you know, prior to the pandemic, we were in the fight of our lives against a, a raging opiate, opiate epidemic, rising overdoses, a system of care that just needed to work much better to, to meet the needs of those who are addicted, who are seriously mentally ill before they ended up in jail in the hospital or, or, or even dead. You know, we now uh, continue in this fight and really are dealing with an epidemic within a pandemic, rising rates of depression, anxiety, trauma, suicide, and overdose. People are generally more ill uh, and take a, a little while longer to recover uh, to baseline as we're seeing them come through our hospital. And I'm sure other folks who are in the healthcare system are seeing the same thing as well. You know, we've known that people with serious and persistent mental illness and addictions die on average 25 years earlier than people who do not have those, those issues. They have higher rates of diabetes, um, pulmonary disease, hypertension, obesity, and smoking. And they're really reluctant uh, to seek care and follow up with care. We you know, tend to have uh, a system, we, we don't really have a system-wide understanding that, that mental health care is health care. Um, we're still problem-focused in, in, in our approach to services, in our approach to people, and we really need to move towards a more person-centered, holistic um, approach to, to serving folks. Um, and what we do know is that integrated services work, um, yet our traditional um, system is, is not completely there yet. Um, we're still a long way away from fully integrating services and having equity and parity in healthcare, despite having passed you know, federal mental health parity legislation quite a while ago. You know, really the time is now to take advantage of an opportunity to correct some fundamental gaps and problems uh, in our system of care. You know, at St. Vincent Charity Medical Center, we've really worked to expand um, 
you know, our continuum of care, we've moved really from an acute model of care to having more complete behavioral health care. Um, we've implemented systems and processes to ensure that we have a, a full behavioral health service line um, versus distinct areas where people are and, and, and providers are working in silos. Um, we have a strategy and priorities that guide our implementation. You know, we've sought funding to increase our clinical capacity for integration. And we've really worked, um, you know, we've really worked hard to integrate um, medical providers on the psychiatry units, develop a clinic where we can integrate primary care and utilize a brief screening, um, screening, brief intervention and referral to treatment to demonstrate the importance and the need to identify behavioral health issues in the medical setting. We've done this both in the inpatient and outpatient unit. You know, we've expanded our intensive outpatient and outpatient services so that people's recovery needs um, can be met for as long as it takes for them to achieve wellness. Um, a lot of service in this day and age is, is again, problem focused. It's a point of service. Um, it's very time limited. And one of the things that we know about people with complex health issues, especially, um, you know, co-occurring serious mental illness uh, and addictions is that they need, um, you know, they need help a long term. We have peer recovery supporters, so people with lived experience um, and all levels of care um, helping provide that beacon of hope, support, and assistance needed. So when people move from one point of care to the next, we can ensure those are smooth transitions. Where we lose, again, people with more complex conditions is in these, these care transitions from more acute care back out to outpatient care. Um, we offer services remotely for anyone who needs it, and we've really emphasized 24-7 access, um, meaning you call one number and you can, you can get services both on the inpatient and outpatient end, and we've really streamlined our points of entry for people who are in um, addiction and, and mental health crisis. Um, I, I want to sort of start to button this up a little bit with talking about some of the reasons that we struggle with integration. Um, there's probably a number of different things, but I want to focus on four. Uh, stigma and attitudes. Um, medical providers um, and people in healthcare in general, just understanding the importance of mental health care and its impact on physical health. Really gaining true parity in our system of care. Um, and then people themselves um, being willing to seek treatment. A lot of times um, people don't access treatment for um, a variety of reasons, but usually it's around the, stigmas and the stigma and attitudes around accessing services. Um, I think we're going to get to that point um, when it becomes normal to go to a psychologist, a social worker, a psychiatrist, just that it is to go to a doctor or a nurse practitioner when you're physically ill. Um, policymakers. We need folks um, who are setting policy uh, to set the right strategy. That's why, you know, you know Joan's organization is so important um, to advocate for us, right? Uh, setting the right strategies, creating the right funding streams. And really in Ohio, I think we're doing a great job. Um, we have an administration, especially at the Department of Mental Health and Medicaid, invested in, um, you know, uh, outreach, prevention, and building a continuum of care. Um, next, I would look at regulatory and billing standards. You know, we don't have equity and reimbursement. Um, COVID helped open our eyes to some of the lopsided, inefficient billing practices that we had. Um, and, and when things shifted and we had the shutdown and, and providers really needed to find a way to, to care for people, um, we saw a real big uh, relaxing of, of the rules around billing for, for telemedicine. And we've really been able to access people in ways um, that we haven't before. Um, um, I remember back in the day talking with, um, you know, coworkers about how we would so much desire to, to be able to bill for the time on the phone uh, 
uh, with clients because we spent so much time on the phone with people, really important time with people, but it's non-reimbursable. Uh, and now we're, we're doing sessions, um, we're doing groups by phone, by video, uh, by really any means necessary to keep people connected to care. Um, the systems and processes that we uh, you know, have in place really don't support a coordinated or integrated, um, really don't support coordinated or integrated care. It's a competitive landscape. Um, not everybody's in the same clinical record system. Um, and even providers of the same patient tend to not talk to one another, um, even if they're, you know, in the same building. Um, you know, uh, kind of wrapping up here, you know, we talk about access issues, but that really doesn't mean that there aren't enough services. It means that, you know, people don't know how to access them. They don't know when they should access them. And we don't always have, you know, the right services uh, for the folks at the right time. Um, I think we can do much better at developing, developing um, our payment systems for, for coordinated supportive services to care for people when they're not yet ready to make changes. I mean, you know, how many people, um, you know, are ready to make big changes? I know it, and it, can, it can be hard for many of us even to just add more exercise or, or to stop eating chocolate cake if that's your thing. So just imagine having to deal with all the things that folks with more um, complex health issues have to deal with. Um, you know, behavioral health and wellness usually goes well beyond what a pill or therapy, you know, can solve. And I think combining approaches, you know, building a network of care and support is, is really where the magic happens and we can see, you know, curative change take place. Great. Thank you, Dr. Biscaro, for that. Um, Jonathan or Joan, would you like to add anything? I just wanted to add quickly that the point about behavioral health not being viewed as part of health care, I don't think the impact of that can be... Um, overstated. It has enormous impact. And, and I will tell you that before COVID hit, I thought we had made a lot of progress in that regard, tremendous progress. And I think we have, I don't mean to minimize that. But COVID demonstrated, I think, to all of us, how we still have a long ways to go. Um, there was um, disparate access in some places to PPE for, for behavioral health providers. We had providers around the state being told by various entities, no, we can't give you PPE because this is for healthcare providers. We saw disparate impact in, at times in regard to vaccine distribution, and we also saw it early on in regard to funding. So as we think about all of these issues today, we still struggle with behavioral health being viewed as part of healthcare, and that has broad ranging ramifications for the people that we all serve. The other thing that I would just like to amplify is what uh, Dr. Bascaro was talking about in terms of stigma. Uh, there's um, a dear colleague in the field here in Cleveland, Dr. Dallas Reyes, who kind of talks about this in terms of what she calls casserole diseases. So if you think about it, if, if your friend uh, tells you that they have cancer or that their, uh, their, their wife is having some sort of problem with her kidneys or what have you, the instant natural reaction to most people is to feel badly, to be very concerned, and to want to try to help. Uh, so if someone's very sick, hey, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to cook you something, I'm going to bring you food, I'm going to bring you a casserole. Those are casserole diseases. But if you uh, go and you talk to your neighbor or your best friend or what have you, and you say, uh, my son overdosed on opioids, suddenly there isn't that same uh, sense of empathy. There isn't that same sense of care and compassion and how can I help? What it is is now there's a, there's a pulling away and there's a little bit of a, oh, I'm not sure what to do with that. 
and and um, you know we start to question people's parenting skills. We start to question all kinds of things, not realizing that we're um, suffering from that stigma that we're talking about. So you'll hear people. I don't want to go to counseling. I don't want to see a psychiatrist. I don't want to see a psychologist. I don't have that problem uh, because it is viewed differently. And so we have the policy impacts that Joan talked about and Dr. Pascaro talked about, but even down to individual people, I would I would uh, uh, challenge uh, anyone in the audience to think about um, their reaction uh, to what I'm saying in terms of if someone told you that you had severe depression or what have you, suddenly there's kind of that, that stigma and that pulling away. And that is really so critical to get through because it is stopping people from accessing care. It's stopping healthcare from being truly integrated uh, and making sure that we pay attention to behavioral health care issues as well as physical health care issues. Well, thank you all. That's that's uh, really insightful. Wanted to talk about something related, which has been some of the well-documented racial and ethnic disparities in both the effects of COVID-19 as well as in vaccination, vaccination access and concerns that minority mental health has been impacted um, for other populations as well. Uh, we, we were talking about a study where there's some suspicion that while suicide rates across the country have fallen broadly, um, they, they may have increased among African-Americans during the pandemic. So how, how can systems work to combat the systematic racism that has led to these disparities? Joan, would you like to kick us off on this? Yeah, thank you, Ben. And, and Heather, thank you for your kind introduction. And I do want to thank the City Club and its members for the opportunity to not only participate um, in this conversation, but thank you for hosting this. Um, these kind of conversations can go right to the heart of the stigma that Jonathan so um, articulately spoke about and Dr. Biscaro. So thank you. Thank you for continuing this conversation. Um, so Ben, your question, this is a critically important issue and one that, that absolutely demands earnest and thoughtful analysis, discussion, and execution. Um, I won't come close to doing this justice with my couple of minutes of comments, um, and I wanted to put that out there, that this is a much bigger conversation that warrants the thought and the analysis and, and then ultimate execution. But there are a number of things that we'd initially propose. Uh, the first is that the education and healthcare systems, and by healthcare, we mean both behavioral health and physical health, should work together to better recruit, prepare, and support a behavioral health workforce that reflects the population served racially, ethnically, culturally, and linguistically. We also think that state licensing boards for all healthcare professions should require racial, ethnic, and cultural competence training hours as a part of continuing education for licensure re renewal. And there's actually a proposed bill in the Ohio Senate right now that would require this. We also think that employers of healthcare professionals should conduct regular formal trainings and opportunities for staff input, but also support informal conversations and anonymous surveys with both staff and patients around racial, ethnic, and cultural competence in the healthcare field and in the organization itself specifically. And this needs to be part of organizational culture. Only doing trainings or posting statements about organizational status without informal conversations and opportunities for anonymous feedback 
um, can inhibit staff and clients from feeling empowered to raise concerns that they might have. We also think that state and local authorities overseeing the behavioral health care systems in Ohio. So Dr. Biscaro mentioned uh, Ohio MOS, that's the, the department at the state level uh, that oversees mental health and addiction services, and also the local alcohol, drug addiction, and mental health services boards. We think they should require organizations to collect and share comprehensive data on shortages within specific races and ethnicities based on occurrence versus treatment access. This would allow for the better formulation of local and state understanding of where shortages and racial disparities exist. We are woefully lacking when it comes to solid data in the behavioral health world, particularly as it comes to race. And we wouldn't say that this should just be done for community behavioral health providers, but also physical health care systems so that we can discover opportunities and the barriers that we need to eliminate to eliminate racial and ethnic disparities in healthcare. We should also be promoting diversity within the system by encouraging higher education to conduct outreach programs that increase minority students heading into the healthcare professions. And I would say that specifically is very true for behavioral health. We also need to address the defragmentation of healthcare financing and delivery. Variations among health plans have caused the disproportionate presence of members of disadvantaged minority groups in lower end healthcare plans, which is a source of disparities in healthcare. And finally, to Dr. Biscaro's point, uh, he started our conversation today, we need to integrate mental health and addiction services into primary care. This broadens access to healthcare professionals that are culturally competent and trusted by bringing behavioral health clinicians to the places people are. Mm -hmm. Primary care is the largest platform for healthcare delivery, and it offers an access point where people can have their behavioral health needs identified and treated. Again, these are only beginning to scratch the surface on what we need to do, but we think they're a start. Thanks. Thanks, Joan, appreciate it. Would anyone else like to weigh in on this particular topic? I absolutely would love to. Um, one of the things that's also occurred over the course of this past year uh, with the death of George Floyd is there's been millions and millions of conversations. Um, and I know I've had a number of them, some of them large conversations, some of them small conversations, where I think people are becoming slightly more aware of exactly what we mean by systemic racism and what that word and the implications are. So let me give you a, a quick anecdote to kind of uh, highlight this point. At Signature Health, we're a vaccine provider. So if you'll recall, the vaccines got approved back in December uh, and it, there was immediately an allocation out to the hospitals in order to get frontline healthcare workers who are working in COVID units to be vaccinated as quickly as possible right around Christmas time. Kind of the second wave of vaccination, the 1B, came out to federally qualified health centers and other providers similar to uh, Centers for Families and Children, Neighborhood Family Practice, Care Alliance, et cetera, and Signature was one of those providers. So we, right around Martin Luther King Day, were able to start with vaccinations. When we got our allocation, the governor had um, issued a mandate that said, we will give you this allocation. You cannot 
only see your own patients. You must put it on your website. There must be a press release. You have to make it open to the general public. This all sounds very reasonable. It makes sense. However, when you think about it, federally qualified health centers are specifically in the business of treating people who are underserved, often large minority populations, so on and so forth. So accidentally what happened was there was a mandate that said we could not go to those who are hardest to reach, but instead we have to open this up and put it on our website. So we all know what happened afterward, which is people started hawking websites um, who were very interested in getting vaccinated. But the problem was the people who had the time to do that, the technology to do that, the access to do that, were fairly, relatively fairly wealthy Caucasian uh, people who uh, had a lot of privileges and were able, and you could see that in the data. Um, this is, this is data-driven, uh, uh, my comments here. What ended up happening is in order for federally qualified health centers like us to actually get to uh, disadvantaged patients and to, frankly, to our patients, was we had to stop putting it on our website. And we had to start partnering with churches who had predominantly African-American congregations and put the sign up on their website so that we could actually get to the populations that the governor himself was interested in getting to. So this was not as though it wasn't on the governor's radar screen, it was. This was very interesting and important for everyone top down to make sure that we had lots of equity and access and that we weren't just uh, giving this to the privileged few. But by accident, that's what happened. And that's what I mean by systemic racism. So one of the most important things, in addition to the litany of things that Joan just did, is to stop and to think about the implications of what otherwise seem like innocuous and innocent kinds of things, to really think about what's the impact to the very disaffected people that we're talking about in the first place. So that's uh, a great point. I really appreciate that. I do want to give a quick break in just to, just for facilitating. In a few minutes, we'll be turning to audience questions. So I want to let the audience know that um, if you have questions for any of our speakers. Please text those questions to 330-541-5794. That's 330-541-5794. You can also tweet them at the City Club, all one phrase, at the City Club, and we'll try to work them in. So we'd love to hear from you. Um, let's move on just in our limited time quickly to a third question. Um, speaking of integrated care, which we talked about, there's been a large push in the health sector to address the social needs of patients in a more holistic and integrated fashion, things like housing and food, transportation. Um, how, would, how can systems assist people who have behavioral health issues addressing their basic needs? And can, on the flip side, addressing basic needs prevent mental health and addiction issues in the first place? Jonathan, would you like to lead us off on this discussion? Thanks, Ben. And uh, definitely, I know. I'm sorry. I meant to recognize we have we have three more minutes until we're going to start um, questions. So just keep that in mind. I'll, I'll be brief. I'm sorry. Thank uh, but thanks, everybody. Thanks for the opportunity to be here and to to talk to the City Club. Um, you know, the the we're calling them the social determinants of health: housing, food, 
transportation, uh, access to wellness services, exercise, diet, so on and so forth. These are all really important because what we know is um, about 80% of the healthcare spend and concerns really are not uh, the healthcare issues, it's all of those other things. So making these connections is critical. And I know a lot of healthcare is really focused more and more on doing that. What we know is, and Dr. Bascaro could probably speak to this better, there are a lot of people that show up in the emergency department when what's really going on is, is that they don't have housing or what's really going on is, is that they don't have food. And so absolutely, and I think healthcare insurers know this, that they actually can uh, reduce the amount of healthcare spend if they pay attention to, to a lot of these other issues. Thank you. Um, we do have a couple of minutes if, if Dr. Mascaro or Joan would like to chime in on this question. Yeah, I would just, I would echo Jonathan, what you said is that um, thankfully we are beginning to focus much more on social determinants of health and really understanding the impact. And we see that all across the age spectrum. We know about the impacts on children and the ACE scores in Ohio that are incredibly high. Um, and actually we're 46 in the country, when, so we know the impact of trauma in addition to the social determinants of health. So rightfully we are focusing there and hopefully all of our managed care partners and the state um, is focused. I know the state is focusing their attention as well. Dr. Biscaro? Yeah, I mean, I just um, would like to add and, and piggyback off of what both Jonathan and, and Joan said, right? I mean, ACEs is huge. We know the impact that has lifelong on health. I don't think we really know how it impacts everybody to the, to the, to the, um, to the kind of the point of the last question we were talking about of really understanding disparities and how various folks are impacted and making general assumptions. But we do know that, you know, early, early trauma um, can be very developmental nature and, and problematic. And Jonathan, you hit the nail on the head. I mean, I think people are coming into care a lot of times for things. Um, it's crisis. You know, I need, I need a place to go. I, I need, we hear people come, you know, we have folks who come because they get a meal, you know, I mean, um, they, they have needs and we're definitely not meeting all of those needs. Um, I mean, you know, Believe it or not, we, we put a lot of effort into just transportation. Um, we spend a lot of money at this at our medical center on helping get people to treatment, um, working with um, the legal aid and the medical legal partnership to address the litany of things that folks have going on that really impact their ability to think about how do I get better and how do I get better now? So. Great, thank you. Um, we have something in from the audience. Um, in just a minute, those are coming in. In the meantime, I will also um, follow up on some of what we've been talking about around addiction, because I know that's a, a topic it's been brought up briefly, but are there any further thoughts? Um, I, the opiate epidemic has definitely gotten a lot of attention, but um, alcohol use, alcohol abuse is up considerably too. I hear that, that the St. Vincent system has seen a, a considerable rise in alcohol detoxification visits. So um, Jonathan might pick this to you, given your expertise and the, the organization you started, how can our society help people address addiction as we hopefully get a handle on COVID pandemic and people start coming out of isolation again? Yeah, ben, you know, uh, thanks again. I really appreciate the question and uh, how you started it, which is to highlight that addiction is larger than the opioid epidemic. Uh, the opioid epidemic really came into focus, frankly, in the 2016 election when there were a number of people running for president and they were 
uh, on campaign stops and people kept asking them about the issue because they were having young people in their communities and in their families dying uh, from opioid addiction. And suddenly it became a, a national focus. Um, the reality is, is that addiction has been here in one form or fashion uh, for ever practically. Uh, I know that I've been in the field uh, since I got uh, sober myself in the 80s, uh, and it was uh, uh, alcohol addiction has been around for millennia. So the first thing that I would say is, is that we have to remember that addiction is addiction. Uh, and yes, we've been spending a lot of time focused on opioid addiction, but uh, let's please remember that the people who are uh, having struggles with alcohol are, are wrestling the same tiger, same thing with crystal meth and cocaine and so on and ecstasy and so on and so forth. Those were all uh, saw their peaks and valleys of popularity. Uh, we know that COVID has really dramatically increased the amount of alcohol consumption. Um, and that is uh, predictable, but certainly worrisome. The science is getting better with addiction. We know that uh, we can prevent addiction, particularly when we are working with young people and we can help them to, uh, to delay the first experimentation with alcohol. So uh, I always like to spend money preventing things. I think that we should spend a lot of time, effort, and energy making sure that young people are engaged in after-school activities, things like that, because we know that after-school is when uh, use begins and when um, people are experimenting and when they're in less structured time. Obviously, with COVID and everybody being homeschooled, et cetera, that has completely scrambled the equation. Uh, but we do want to get uh, as many dollars and resources into prevention as we can. Again, we know that if people don't try alcohol or drugs until they're out of adolescence for the first time, their chances of becoming addicted are dramatically less. Uh, and, and that's really important. For people who are using, people who are having troublesome uh, troubles with their using, uh, all too often uh, it is the addict that's the last person to know, uh, and they are not the ones that seek help on their own. It's often referral sources. Uh, we they bump into the courts, their parents, uh, schools. Uh, you know, the superintendent, or they get in trouble. That kind of thing. Those are the ways that we end up. Uh, uh, finding them or referrals from primary care physicians, etc. Uh, the earlier, the better. The sooner that we can introduce treatment, the better. Uh, we know that treatment works. Uh, is it perfect? No. Do people relapse? Absolutely. But if you compare it with many other disease processes, you're talking about a, a fairly reasonably good chance of recovery. Maybe not the first time, but you know, just like um, a, a diabetic's uh, blood sugar may um, become uncontrolled for a period of time, you don't give up on them. You don't stop mm -hmm. giving diabetic insulin. Uh, you, you keep working with them. Great. Uh, and so that that's really important. Okay. Well, I want to move to audience. That's that's wonderful perspective, uh, Jonathan. Thank you so much. Uh, wanted to move to some audience questions now. One, I'm going to paraphrase a bit. Someone asked. We've talked a lot in, so far about folks with some fairly serious, persistent mental illness, maybe bipolar disorder, schizophrenia, or, or long-term addiction issues. What about 
the reported rise in anxiety and depression, people who who may not be in some ways quite as sick, but still are, are going to be reaching out. I think there's may need help with positive coping skills. How are we as a society, how are we as a system going to work with the potential crush of people seeking help for these uh, these types of uh, these types of conditions? Oh, I can start us off. Um, at the state level, uh, we, many of us, have been working for the past year um, in anticipation of what you're talking about. Um, the research that's out there has shown in the past that once uh, a community um, goes through some type of a tragedy or something like a hurricane, something along those lines, and after the, the issues related to a physical health surge begin to diminish, that's when a behavioral health surge can arise. And we have anticipated that over the past year and have been working to prepare for that. Uh, a number of things have uh, occurred through the leadership at the state level, including setting up the Ohio Care Line. Uh, and that has now been in place for an entire year. Uh, so to talk exactly about the folks that you're talking about, Ben, recognizing their anxiety is increasing, they may be drinking too much, uh, they may realize that they are uh, feeling more depressed than they had before. It's a care line that's been set up to actually then refer to services in the community, and that's seen remarkable success. Similar initiatives have been undertaken in regard to texting ability. Um, we've also done a fair amount to bolster supports at the local level, including through telehealth and other kinds of initiatives. Those have proven to be very powerful tools for some folks, and it ties again in with the stigma, they may not be willing to show up to a provider. They may not know where a provider is. They may not even know what a provider is. Uh, but now having the ability to reach out to people, not only via you know, the screens on our cell phones, but just on a phone call can really help people access the services that they need in a way that works for them. Um, it also allows folks who didn't previously have access to transportation or new mothers who may not be able to leave children or a baby at home, um, older folks who may not have the, the mobility that they once had, it allows those folks to be able to access services. So we have anticipated that this was going to happen. And we haven't seen, knock on wood, my dining room table, the, the surge in the suicides that we had feared might happen. And I think a lot of that, or some of it anyway, is due to the advanced legwork that we've done up to this point. Now, unfortunately, on the flip side of that, we have seen an increase in the number of deaths by overdose. And I think there are a number of tragic reasons why, and we have much more to do in that area. But candidly, we don't know if we've seen the peak of a surge yet or even the beginning of a surge. We're still moving through this space. But I will tell you that there are many of us that are moving through this space with our eyes as wide open as they can possibly be um, and our ears open, too, to listen to what the needs are in the communities. Well, thank you, Joe. And I think piggybacking off that is another question that might be something for Jonathan or Dr. Briscaro. Um, primary care, it seems, can serve as a gateway to behavioral health, to also increasing access. Um, what what does that look like? Can you make that come alive for somebody, either of you? John, you want to take you want to take that, and I'll I'll piggyback off you. Go ahead. Appreciate it. So um, this has been an area that I know Dr. Bascaro has been focused on, that we've been focused on here at Signature Health, which is the, the integration of care and kind of that no wrong door. Uh, many of the insurance companies will tell you that 50% of all mental health and behavioral health care is exactly this. 
it's anxiety, depression, what we would think of as relatively mild mental health symptoms in comparison to something like schizophrenia or bipolar. Uh, and they're often um, initially treated in primary care. And many of you will probably notice as you go to your primary care physician, uh, primary care physicians are getting better and better and better about screening for behavioral health. So there's, uh, there are more and more questions. There's uh, something called the PHQ-9 or the PHQ-2, which is a, a screening for depression and, and anxiety. So primary care physicians are getting much more comfortable with this uh, process and working with patients uh, for some uh, initial kinds of care. And many of them have begun to integrate counseling into the primary care office. And, and that's one of the things that that naturally we have done at Signature is to make sure that uh, there's a, a therapist available to any primary care physician to be able to bring them directly into the exam room and to begin working with somebody uh, with coping skills, psychosocial kinds of things. Naturally, primary care physicians are also adept at initial medications, uh, antidepressant or anti-anxiety medication. Often, if they find that there's no uh, good uh, response to that initial medication or they've tried one or two, then that's when they might refer you to a specialist to see a psychiatrist, that kind of thing. But that initial care is often good for most people. And a lot of times people are accessing it in their primary care office. So that would be one of the first things that I would suggest is that if you know someone that is having concerns like that and they don't know where to go, schedule an appointment to go see your primary care physician. Yeah, and no, I'd just like to piggyback off of what um, both, you know, Joan and, and Jonathan said. I, 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 you know, I think that first question um, what was a really was a really good one. Both of these questions are, are wonderful. Integrated care is for everyone who doesn't want their care to be all together. Um, how many of you listening in today have providers in four or five different places? Um, I know if there was somebody in my um, provider's office who, who I could talk to, um, I'd probably schedule an appointment with them, um, and, and I think a lot of people would. Um, it creates uh, and and it cr it creates ready access. It makes it normal. Um, it makes it feel more comfortable. Um, and and I used to so so prior to coming to St. Vincent Charity Medical Center, I worked for the VA. I did a lot of work with our um, you know medical residents talking about mental illness and and recovery and how to get folks into treatment. And I really impressed upon them how important it was for them. You know, to have have these conversations with people because folks really do trust you. To Jonathan's point, I mean, if, if nothing else, have people make a, a, an appointment with their primary care doc because at least that's where things can get started. It's a um, a great gateway, a great way to open things up to normalize things. And I think um, that's the important, and that's kind of the the sweet spot for integrated care is being able to really uh, normalize things and look at a person, um, you know, a person's whole 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 health needs, which you know, oftentimes we're not doing. We're really focused. Again, I, I probably have already said this a few times, but we're really focused on the problem, and we really need to be focused on the on the living, breathing being in front of us. Thank you. And I, one other question that just came in, but I'll bump it up because it's related. Um, there were some news stories today about um, clinics, um, uh, corner store clinics, uh, CVSs, and the like. Um, creating that some of their own behavioral health services. Do you have any sense, um, maybe this is best for Jonathan, probably um, any sense on how 
successful you think these might be at a CVS or a Walmart? I, th I think that they'll be very successful. Uh, so um, one of the things that, that Joan touched on is, uh, you know, we expect to see a surge. There's a lot of demand for care and there is a lot of demand for ready access, immediate care. So Dr. Vascaro talked about focusing in on that at St. Vincent's. I know that we have been, I'm sure many of Joan's members have been because, you know, really when, when you're ready for care, uh, having to wait a month or what have you is just simply not, uh, not helpful. Um, so I, I think that there is a piece there. There's also, as you know, a large increase in telemedicine uh, companies. Um, you know, there's uh, Talkspace and some of the others that have kind of come onto the scene where there's a number of people who are accessing care in that way. So there is a lot of focus. Frankly, there's not enough uh, therapists for the demand. And so that's uh, what I expect that CVS will find in their pilot is that there will be a lot of demand and there will be a lot of people that are interested in accessing care and they'll fill up quite quickly and they'll have a hard time keeping their promise of immediate access because it, you have to find the therapist to do that. And so scaling becomes difficult. Um, and, that's, and that's the reason why I say the integration of care is important accessing care in multiple ways, whether it be telemedicine, primary care, directly to a behavioral health provider, um, early access is, uh, is really quite important. CVS is owned, uh, owns Aetna. There is a reason why they are doing this, and it's because they know that providing care at that corner store is a whole lot less expensive than waiting till someone goes to the hospital. And they know that it works. And so I suspect that you'll see a broadening of this. You've seen it in Walmarts and things like that. Uh, and here again, um, you know, this is uh, a broadening of the same topic, integrated care, making it convenient and making it more normal and less stigmatized. Great. Um, you know, Jonathan, one other question for you that was specifically directed at you, just to follow up from your discussion on how you were targeting vaccines towards the, the uh, community. How did the data change after some of those strategies that you put in place? Well, the, the natural obvious thing is uh, we saw a, a large increase in minority participation uh, and their ability. So when you, uh, and there's data available through the Better Health Partnership here in Cleveland, et cetera. When you look at the minority populations in general as a total percentage compared to those served by federally qualified health centers like Signature and others that uh, pursued that strategy. We have a much higher percentage of um, minorities, both Hispanic, Latinx, African-American, so on and so forth, even LGBTQ communities because we targeted them. So it really just takes effort and focus um, and, and so you saw a nice increase when we started to do that. Great, thanks. And, and a specific one for Dr. Biscaro too, um, about your clinic and some of your outcomes and specifically how to link to your clinic. Someone was curious um, if you had like maybe one quick success story as well as, as some, some info on how to connect to you. 
So, I mean, yeah, how people, you know, connect to, you know, our services is by calling, you know, our access number. It's 216-363-2580. I've said that in my sleep probably, you know. So, um, you know, you call that number and you, and you can get, get access. I mean, there, um, you know, there have been folks, um, you know, who, who have, um, um, we've had a few folks who have gone through uh, detox a number of times um, and, um, because they've gone through detox a number of times, I think they're start, they have started to realize that, that maybe there's something else going on here. Um, and we've had a few folks who have linked successfully with our, with our new clinic and really started to explore some of the, some of the trauma, some of the anxiety, some of the depression in each of those different cases um, that has really been contributing uh, to, to, to their continued pattern of abuse um, and really, really their, their difficulties in functioning. Um, you know, and I think um, we, we have, um, you know, we're really excited. We have a robust, um, um, you know, primary care presence on this campus so we can link people um, to care. One of the things that we're going to do with our new clinic is actually establish um, primary care clinics, um, you know, in that suite to really meet the, the, the complexities um, that folks present to us. So when we, um, that's another thing we see people who are, um, whether it's addiction, um, whether it's mental health or both, um, there are a number of health challenges that they come with. So really having that care right there for those individuals, you know, and targeting that, targeting that population that's complex, really working together as a team, I think, um, I think that's really what, what we're most excited about. So, uh, but really easy access using one number. Um, and we've had a few cases here where people who have come through our system multiple times, you know, now accessing, accessing, um, what we're calling the integrated care clinic, receiving outpatient mental health and trauma and wellness services, and seeing that trajectory start to change. Um, um, people who, um, one in particular, kind of in detox kind of multiple times already this year is, you know, stayed at finally staying out, you know, for a period of time, um, you know, and, and addressing some things and, and making some changes, so. Great, thanks. Um, Joan, maybe I'll start with you on this next really excellent question. The pandemic is, and we talked a lot about stigma already on the panel here, but the pandemic has increased awareness of the wide span of mental health issues individuals may face. Could a silver lining of the COVID pandemic be the destigmatization of mental health disorders and a normalization of its care and treatment? Yeah, great question. And and to answer the question, I think it has. I, I think that it has helped um, engage the broader community because the broader community is now experiencing some of these things, perhaps in some cases for the very first time. Folks are talking about their anxiety. They're talking about the anxiety of their children. They're talking about the depression that their older parents may be experiencing right now. So I think it has um, been a bit of a silver lining, one, one part of a silver lining anyway, and that we are all collectively talking about this more. Our hope is that this conversation will continue. We also have seen an increase in conversation regarding addiction, quite candidly, because of the opiate epidemic. Uh, the opiate epidemic began a number of years ago to hit communities that had not previously experienced um, issues of this type. Um, and as a result, we began having conversations about addiction being a disease. We didn't have that conversation when it was substances that were hitting primarily minority communities. And we responded by trying to incarcerate everyone. We didn't recognize, we didn't acknowledge, we didn't own the fact that these are diseases, but we are now uh, largely in part because of the opiate epidemic and, and who has been impacted. So 
Um, that is a silver lining for the opiate epidemic. Um, the silver lining from the COVID impact is also that we are talking about these things more. I think the challenge for all of us is to continue to have this conversation and not only talk about it, do something about it. We have policy change that needs to occur and we need to, to do that broadly at the local level and at the state level and at the federal level. So if we can continue this conversation moving forward and make change that is lasting and sustainable, we can begin to impact people's access to treatment and the broader conversation regarding behavioral health disorders. And the other thing I just wanna lift up on the integrated conversation, because I don't want this to get lost in the conversation. Sorry, Ben, I'm gonna take a left here. But when we talk about integrated care and we're talking about primary care, um, principally in our conversation today, I don't wanna lose the fact that there is also integrated care for the young Ohioans in our state. So having those conversations with your pediatrician for your children is so incredibly important. And working with our pediatric communities to build out those supports for pediatricians and for Ohioans with young children is also critically important in ensuring that young Ohioans and their families are able to access the care they need understand what care might be needed. I mean, part of the challenge for young Ohioans is helping parents understand what behavioral health disorders may look like in their children, and then talking to them about where to be able to access services. And so much of that can um, be facilitated through the offices of pediatricians. So thanks for letting me take a left, Ben, but I wanted to make sure that got out there for our young Ohioans and their families. Absolutely. Um, you know, one other question came in that's sort of related to what you were saying, although it's a little more diagnostic. Um, can the panel speak to how to identify a mental health emergency? Um, what is a quote unquote emergency and when to call for immediate help like 911 uh, rather than waiting for an appointment with a counselor or a therapist? I will editorialize here and say I used to be a board member of the National Alliance on Mental Illness or NAMI has a wealth of information both online and in person around um, these kinds of questions. So I would encourage you to reach out to them. But would um, uh, Dr. Biscaro maybe be able to uh, help people to differentiate what is what is an immediate need versus what can wait a couple days or a week for help. Yeah, I mean, wow, that's such a really good question. And, and two minutes. I, right? Oh, <laughs> yes, it's, really it's a really good question. Thanks for prompting me. <laughs> it's a really good question. Certainly, you know, 1-800-273-TALK, that's a national crisis suicide hotline. Um, using available resources, um, great shout out there, uh, Ben, to, to NAMI. Um, but kind of more practically speaking, you know, we, we really shouldn't wait. That's the problem. I think um, all too often, you know, depending on what you look at, year, two years, it takes people uh, experiencing symptoms to actually go go get help. Uh, a crisis is when symptoms exceed somebody's resources that deal with the situation. Um, and, and Lord knows um, that, that that now more than ever, um, people are are dealing with that. So. Um, if, if a person is not isolated and by themselves and they have supports who can recognize um, the isolation, um, the despair, the changes in patterns and behaviors, um, just having that conversation you know, with somebody, if, if they're a trusted source, um, providing them resources um, and talking with them can, can really um, move things in, in the right direction. But, but um, I definitely wanted to, to say that there is a national um, crisis and suicide hotline um, yeah, NAMI and, and, and advocacy organizations are great. Our local um, Adams board um, is also a great resource and actually has 
um, a warm line, a peer line that's managed 24/7, where you can talk, people can talk to peers. Um, um, but but again, um, we don't want to wait. Um, we want to encourage people to get help, and, and we want to normalize it as much as as much as possible. That's certainly been the, one of the big themes here today. Jonathan, anything else from your clinical experience about the difference between an immediate crisis versus something that um, you can wait 24 hours or, or whenever we can get whenever we can get into treatment? Yeah, what I would add to that is is that if you are afraid someone is going to be hurt, whether it be themselves or someone else, you should consider that an emergency and call. Particularly if they have the means to do that and the opportunity. So what do I mean? If they have weapons. Uh, if they're talking about hanging themselves and you find that they have actually bought a rope or you see, the, you know, evidence of that sort of thing, um, that those are good signs that this is a crisis and that you really should call someone. So uh, when someone says, I don't want to be here anymore, or maybe I'd be better off if I wasn't here, those are red flags that you want to be thinking about, hey, do I need to move this to the next step? And uh, when you see, you know, if they've written something in a journal about not being here, et cetera, and they're, they're, there's a lot of suicidal or they're very violent, uh, they seem to be physically out of control. Those are really important times to, uh, to move quickly. Well, thank you for that. I, I will add that you'll never plant the idea of suicide in someone's head if you ask them. If you're worried about it, ask is the general advice. Um, because it's so important to have that open communication. Well, our, our time is up. I wanna thank our panelists for this incredibly insightful discussion. I love that we had some high-minded uh, policy and general systems change recommendations, as well as some very on the ground help for those who are struggling or have our caregiver for someone who is struggling. Um, just, just a really a great uh, coverage of a really complex topic in a very short time. So I'll turn it back to Heather Stoll to close us out. Great. Thanks for joining us today for today's forum on the current mental health and behavioral health crisis. What an insightful group. I could listen to these experts all day. We've been talking with Dr. Michael Biscaro, Chief of Behavioral Health at St. Vincent Cherry Medical Center, Jonathan Lee, President and CEO of Signature Health, and Joan England, Executive Director of the Mental Health and Addiction Advocacy Coalition. Our moderator is Ben Maladin, Vice President of Behavioral Health Strategy and Design at the Centers. Today's forum is sponsored by the Woodruff Foundation. All City Club's virtual forums are presented for free every week thanks to generous support from Bank of America, KeyBank, the Northeast Ohio Regional Sewer District, and PNC. You can join them in supporting City Club's mission by making a contribution online or becoming a member at cityclub.org. Thanks for joining us today. Our, our forum is now adjourned. <laughs> <laughs>